Ukrainian officials say several people are dead after a Russian airstrike on a restaurant. The attack comes as Ukraine steps up its counteroffensive. It's Wednesday, June 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden's top economic advisor on the president's new economic approach called Bidenomics. Inequality, decades of disinvestment in communities, and the absence of competition in some of our industries. Also, the extreme heat that's breaking records in Texas and this hour. We're celebrating what's in the dish as opposed to what's been taken out of it. Scallions add a little crunch. Oh, I think it's delicious. Some Boston hospitals are helping fight climate change by encouraging staff to go meat-free. In sports, Red Sox lose. Cloudy with a chance for rain today in the 80s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The full effect of last weekend's aborted mutiny in Russia by the mercenary Wagner Group isn't yet known. But NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says the Western military alliance is already beefing up its presence in countries that border Ukraine and Russia's ally, Belarus. We will make further decisions to further strengthen our collective defense uh, with uh, more high readiness forces and uh, uh, with more uh, capabilities to ensure uh, uh, credible deterrence and defense uh, for the whole alliance. Meanwhile, authorities in eastern Ukraine say at least nine people have been killed after Russian forces bombed a pizza restaurant. Three of the dead are children. About 50 people were injured when the missile struck at dinner time. Millions of student loan borrowers are awaiting the Supreme Court's decision on the legality of President Biden's debt forgiveness program. It's aimed at providing financial relief to millions of Americans. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the initiative has been stalled by legal challenges. The justices heard arguments in a pair of cases this term challenging the program. One was brought by attorneys general from six Republican-led states. The other was filed by two individual borrowers. Both lawsuits claim the administration overstepped its authority in canceling student debt. White House Deputy Press Secretary Olivia Dalton says the administration does have that right. We are confident in the legal arguments that we've made. We certainly hope the Supreme Court agrees because we know all too well what the stakes are for millions of students. The administration's plan provides debt relief for up to $10,000 for most borrowers and up to $20,000 for recipients of income-based Pell Grants. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Nearly 500 wildfires continue to burn across Canada. Dan Karpinchuk reports the wildfire smoke is causing problems for millions. 2023 has now been named the worst wildfire season in Canadian history, with nearly 260 burning out of control. Canadians across the country are experiencing poor air quality because of the smoke. One of the biggest fires in northeastern British Columbia continues to burn thousands of acres daily. Environment Canada has issued a special air quality statement for communities near the border with the North West Territories. Officials say temperatures in the 90s are also fueling the wildfires. Drifting smoke is also affecting the prairie provinces as well as Ontario and Quebec. More than 19 million acres have burned across Canada so far this year. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. The smoke from the Canadian wildfires is also blanketing parts of the Midwest and the East Coast. Air quality alerts cover the entire states of Iowa, Michigan and Wisconsin. Parts of Illinois, New York, Maryland, and Pennsylvania are also affected. One tracking site, IQ Air, says some of the worst air quality is in Detroit and Chicago. 
It's NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Massachusetts is reducing the number of weeks people can receive unemployment benefits. It's going down from 30 weeks to 26 weeks for people who apply for unemployment beginning next month. The reduction is due to a decrease in the state's unemployment rate. State law requires the length of jobless benefits to go down if the unemployment rate dips below 5.1 percent. Mercury emissions from out-of-state coal power plants pollute lakes, streams, and rivers in Massachusetts. To increase protections, State Attorney General Andrea Campbell is leading a multi-state effort to request more stringent federal rules. More now from WBUR's Paolo Mora. The Environmental Protection Agency has proposed lowering emissions limits for a small number of coal plants. A group of 19 attorneys general and cities is asking for stricter emissions limits on all coal-fired plants. Assistant Attorney General Tracy Triplett says it's important because state laws cannot reach outside of Massachusetts' borders. But it's something that the federal government has the responsibility and the authority under the Clean Air Act to control. She says about 200 bodies of water in Massachusetts are contaminated with mercury and have fishing advisories. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. A New Jersey lawyer accused of committing a series of sexual assaults in Charlestown is facing new charges for attacking four other women in Boston's North End. Yesterday, a grand jury indicted the man on multiple rape and assault charges. Prosecutors say DNA evidence helped tie him to the attacks, which happened between 2007 and 2008. He'll be formally charged on the new counts in Suffolk Superior Court next month. The Barnstable County Jail is bringing in its own team to provide mental health services for inmates. The jail says its current provider, WellPath, doesn't have enough people on staff to meet the jail's needs. Barnstable County Sheriff Donna Buckley says the move means better oversight. Most of the people in our jails are coming back into the community and without appropriate medical and mental health services. While they're incarcerated, the people that are being released are not going to be able to succeed. WellPath did not respond to a request for comment. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. And The Huntington, presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, now through July 23rd at the Huntington Theater, HuntingtonTheater.org. The Red Sox lost to the Miami Marlins 10-1 last night at Fenway Park. The teams will play again tonight. The New England Patriots say they are deeply saddened at the death of former quarterback Ryan Mollett. The 35-year-old drowned yesterday in Florida. Mollett played for the Pats from 2011 to 2013. A line of storms moving through the south shore and south coast has reached Boston, bringing rain, and there's a chance of showers and storms throughout the day today. It'll be in the 80s, cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 60s, partly sunny tomorrow with another chance for rain near 80. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. 
And I'm Steve Inskeep. Today, President Biden makes a case for his economic leadership. He speaks in Chicago. Unemployment is low. The economy is growing. But in surveys, voters disapprove of the president's economic management. He's now using a term to sum up his approach. So we're changing. We decided to replace this theory with what the press is now called Bidenomics. I don't know what the hell that is. (laughs) But it's working. The White House now uses that label for its policies. We talked with Biden's top economic advisor, Jared Bernstein. I was looking at this Pew Research survey, and they had a sentence, while Americans' views of current economic conditions continue to be largely negative, their outlook for the future has worsened. There's a kind of double negative quality to that. It's cold, but at least it's rainy. Um, People have had negative views of the economy for a long time. Why are people so dissatisfied? A lot of it depends on how you ask the question, Steve. I mean, if you ask broad questions, one of the problems you find these days is you immediately tap into a deep well of partisanship. Bidenomics is actually about getting things that are pretty granular done, building the economy from the bottom up and the middle out in a way that we know actually resonates strongly with people. You find numbers like 76% of voters say they support the bipartisan infrastructure initiative to invest in highways, to expand broadband internet. 72% of voters say they support the Chips and Science Act, which strengthens supply chains and uh, stands up domestic manufacturing of, uh, of semiconductors. So I think you get a very different set of results when you actually ask about the specifics of Bidenomics. What are some of the long-term problems or distortions in the economy that you think are real and that you're trying to address? One is the sharp increase in inequality. Uh, Two is uh, decades of disinvestment in communities and towns and public goods. And three is the absence of competition, uh, concentration in some of our uh, most important industries, whether it's technology or healthcare uh, industries that drive up costs uh, for American consumers. Reversing each one of those long-term negative trends. You alluded to low unemployment, which is certainly true. There's another key figure here, which is labor force participation, which I'll explain for layman. That's just the percentage of people who are out there in the country who are working or not. Labor force participation has been increasing during this administration, has been recovering from the depths of the pandemic, but it is also historically much lower than it was 15 or 20 years ago. Is that a problem? In fact, labor force participation of working age people is back to where it was uh, 15 years ago. And uh, that's not a problem. That's a good thing. And in fact, one of the things we see happening is that this persistently tight labor market is pulling people in off the sidelines. And that's very important. I I don't want to argue with an economist about statistics because maybe you're looking at a different chart than I am, but I'm looking at data from the St. Louis Fed showing that 15 years ago, the labor force participation rate was over 66%, and now it's down around 62, a little more than 62. It hasn't recovered. Yeah, no, that's correct. So, so, you know, this is, I I wanted to avoid going in the weeds, but you're forcing me to do so, uh, which is fine. I appreciate it. One of the things we have in our labor market is... uh, older people like me aging out of the job market, so the boomers. Um, So in order to take that, um, you want to take retirees kind of out of the mix when you judge your labor force progress. And to do that, we look at working age people, 25 to 54-year-olds. That's just a nice way to control for the fact that we have an aging society. Take out uh, some of the older workers and you have the working age 
labor force participation rate at a 15-year high. And if you're looking at women, it recently hit the highest it's been on record. Do you expect a recession in the next year? The way I assess that from here at the Council of Economic Advisors is that it's just uh, very tough to look around corners, and forecasters have gotten this wrong consistently. I think that many people keep saying we're in a recession, we're going to be in a recession. If you look at the indicators of recession, they're just not there. And, you know, a recession is not a function of bad vibes or whatever entrails somebody happens to be looking at. It's a function of a set of variables that uh, economists evaluate. And None of those variables is flashing recession. So the fact is, we are not in a recession, and the economy, particularly the job market, I think it has solid momentum. Do you assume that inflation, which was quite high a year ago, is going to continue drifting down? Well, certainly the trend has been favorable. And when you have a variable like inflation uh, year over year falling 11 months in a row, that trend is your friend, and uh, we expect that uh, to uh, continue, but we don't take it for granted. Jared Bernstein, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Steve. Take care. The newsman Dan Rather once said on TV that a close election was hotter than a Laredo, Texas parking lot. This week, that parking lot is about as hot as it's been. I'm glad I'm not in a Texas parking lot because much of the southern U.S. is under heat advisories, and that includes Texas. The heat is straining the power grid and breaking temperature records. Mose Bouchel is with member station KUT in Austin and is covering this, and I hope not being too hot while doing it. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, How is this different from every other hot summer in Texas? Well, it's, usually it's like in July and August when we get this big heat, but here we are in June and we're breaking a ton of heat records, including the, the heat index, which is that, that feels like temperature. So um, here in Austin last week, we hit 118 degrees. In San Antonio, it was 116 heat index. In Dallas, it hit 117. And it's important that, to say that we're talking about the heat and the humidity here, right? So that's unusual in a lot of the state where heat waves are often associated with drought. This humidity is keeping it very hot overnight. People are obviously trying to stay inside if they can, and a lot of cities have set up cooling centers. Okay, so you can't say that thing about, well, it's a dry heat. You can't dismiss it in that way. Exactly. Um, So what if you have to work outside? Uh, It's really tough. I was out yesterday. I ran into a guy named Andre Southall. He's a welder here in Austin who's on a job site outside. I asked him to describe what it's been like. Unbearable. So you, you have to take precautions. Right. Southall says that means taking breaks and, of course, staying hydrated, drinking water. Uh, This is something that's getting a lot of attention right now because uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott just signed a law ending mandatory water breaks for construction workers. So like here in Austin, for example, we had a local rule that said workers needed water breaks in the heat. State Republicans ended those worker protections. Southall's worried about that. You know, you can't just tell a construction worker that's working in 100 degree heat. The heat index being 112, 15, that they can't stop and take water. That's cruel and unusual punishment, I believe. Worth remembering that extreme heat causes more deaths in the U.S. than any other kind of natural disaster. That's according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Hmm. Have people died from this heat then? Oh, yeah. There there have been several reports around the state. That includes nine heat-related deaths in Webb County around Laredo, um, a mail carrier who died on the job last week in Dallas when the heat index was around 115 degrees. Some of these deaths are still under investigation, but obviously there may be many more that we're not aware of right now. People are naturally going to wonder how much of a factor is climate change here. 
Yet human-caused climate change means more intense and more frequent heat waves. Uh, I talked to Victor Murphy. He's a climate program manager at the National Weather Service in Fort Worth, and he says a warmer atmosphere just holds more humidity. So as far as climate change fingerprints, I would say perhaps the uh, the decrease in humidity and water vapor in the atmosphere, you know, these nucleus high dew points that we saw. Another climate fingerprint, like Murphy says, could be a weakening jet stream that's basically an air current that circles the globe. A weaker jet stream means weather can get stuck in place like we're seeing with this heat over the south. You know, I'm remembering the extreme cold in Texas a couple years back, which devastated the power grid. I guess heat can also put a lot of strain on the grid. Yeah, absolutely. I'm keeping my eyes on the Texas grid, how it holds up. Uh, we set a new record for energy demand yesterday with everyone turning up their ACs. It looks like we'll do it again today, probably. Uh, the other question is how this early heat could introduce drought again to the state. That could lead to more heat later in the summer, July and August. So this really could just be the first chapter in a really scorching Texas summer this year. Mose Bouchel with KUT. Stay cool. Thank you. Four more people have been arrested in connection with what's believed to be the deadliest human smuggling incident in U.S. history. A year ago, 53 people, including six children and a pregnant woman, died after they were trapped in a hot, unventilated trailer in San Antonio. A warning, this report includes graphic details of what investigators learned about how they suffered and how they died. Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios reports. Tuesday marked the one-year anniversary of the tragedy. Jaime Esparza, U.S. attorney for the Western District of Texas, described the conditions inside the trailer on that sweltering June afternoon. As temperatures rose inside the trailer, the people trapped inside screamed and banged on the walls for help. Some passed out. Others clawed at the sides of the trailer, attempting to escape. At least 66 people were inside that truck, from Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras. They paid upwards of $15,000 to be smuggled into the country. The indictment unsealed yesterday alleges the smugglers coordinated their trip via a network of stash houses and trailers. It also alleges they knew the air conditioning in the 53-foot trailer of the 18-wheeler did not work and still loaded people inside. The trip began in Laredo, ending three hours later in San Antonio. 48 people will be found dead or dying when the trailer was opened in San Antonio. Five more died in hospitals. Again, U.S. Attorney Jaime Esparza. The allegations in this indictment are horrifying. Dozens of desperate, vulnerable men, women, and children put their trust in smugglers who abandoned them in the locked trailer to perish in the merciless Texas heat. The four men newly arrested in Texas this week are all Mexican nationals. Riley Corrubias Ponce, Felipe Orduna Torres, Luis Alberto Rivera Leal, and Armando Gonzalez Ortega. They each face four human smuggling charges, including transporting people resulting in death. The investigation is ongoing. The truck's driver and another man, Homero Zamorano Jr. and Christian Martinez, were arrested last year and charged in the tragedy. They're expected back in court this September. For NPR News, I'm Joy Palacios in San Antonio. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a former CIA operative weighs in on the struggle for power in Russia after last weekend's attempted mutiny. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. 
1956, a federal judge ordered the town of Clinton, Tennessee to desegregate its high school. By the end of the week, the entire town had exploded. The National Guard had to come in. Eventually, the school was bombed and destroyed and rebuilt by the evangelist, Billy Graham. The forgotten story of desegregation in Clinton, Tennessee. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Provincetown is ranked as the best place for biking in the country. That's according to a new report from the group People for Bikes, which ranks communities based on factors like safety for cyclists and bike infrastructure. Cambridge ranks as second best in Massachusetts and 56th nationwide. Among large U.S. cities, Boston ranks 26th in the country. It's raining at this hour in parts of Boston, and there's a chance of showers and thunderstorms all day. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy with a high near 82. Tonight, mostly cloudy with a low around 66. Tomorrow, partly sunny and a high near 80 with a chance of showers. It's 72 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Mattress Firm, whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Arthur Mitchell was a star with the New York City Ballet when he co-founded the Dance Theater of Harlem in 1969 during the height of the Civil Rights Movement. He was a pioneer in his own right, one of the few black principal ballet dancers in the world. But he wanted more, a school to expose other black and Latino kids to ballet and a professional company to offer the most talented a place to excel. For Virginia Johnson, it was life-changing. A teacher at the Washington School of Ballet had been training Johnson for years, but warned her that she had no future with a major ballet company. They wouldn't hire a black ballerina. So when Johnson heard that the world-renowned Arthur Mitchell was starting a company, she leapt at the opportunity. I got to New York just at the moment that he made that decision and was able to audition for Arthur Mitchell, who didn't like me at all, didn't like my dancing, didn't think it was there's any hope for me. <laughs> but said, okay, we'll see what we can do. And I got to be one of the first members of Dance Theatre Harlem. She would go on to dance with the company for a remarkable 28 years, starring in pieces as wide-ranging as Giselle and A Streetcar Named Desire. Then she pivoted to arts reporting before returning to the dance theater as artistic director more than a decade ago. Part of her job involved getting the traveling company back on stage and back on solid financial footing after it shut down for many years. I spent time with Virginia Johnson days before she set to retire as artistic director. We sat down in one of the company's rehearsal studios, which is right next to a playground and a police station. As we sat together, I realized that back in 1969, at least, her race was not the only thing that made Virginia Johnson stand out. 
I'm very tall. I was a very tall Giselle. <laughs> but I was trained in the Vaganova school, which is a very uh, classically and very placed and very, there's a beauty to being still. Arthur Mitchell came from George Balanchine's uh, New York City Ballet, which is a, where he created the style of dancing called neoclassical ballet, which is about dynamic movement and covering space and not being static, not making poses, but making movement. And so, yeah, you know, it was horribly deflating and painful when he was like, oh, I'm not sure about you. But it was also an opportunity to learn something and to be challenged by something new. Tell me about those early days. Did you feel like you were pioneers? We did feel like pioneers. We did very much feel like we were crusaders, that we had an important message, that we had to change people's minds. And those early years of Dance Theatre of Harlem were extremely... Um, it was a lean time for us. It was a small company. We did a lot of bus and truck tours. We were going into small cities. People were thinking they were going to see the Harlem Globetrotters. No. <laughs> because it was a bunch of tall, skinny black people. And they couldn't imagine that we were ballet dancers. Are you serious? People I'm actually serious. Said, I'm people, serious. We'd, we'd be in the airport and it's like, are you guys the Harlem Globetrotters? <laughs> so, so there was a lot of convincing. Uh, so it was very much, so we had to band together, we had to be strong, and we had to be excellent. The other thing that Dance Theatre of Harlem did that I think people may not understand, even if they've seen it, is that even the language of ballet is very white. There's like the so-called white ballets. Exactly. And it's not because the people are white, but because kind of, well, you explain that. Why are they called the white ballets? Because the costumes are white. But, so, yes, you know, the thing that people get stuck with is a very narrow definition of what ballet is. And certainly ballet started in the court of Louis XIV, you know, but there's Russian ballet and there's Italian ballet. Ballet is everywhere. Ballet speaks to people because it's an art form of elevation. And elevation is a human impulse. Ballet got refined and sliced and diced and, and came to be this thing that was about everybody looking exactly alike and everybody um, having the same physical shape, having the same timing, the same unity of, precision. of movement. Precision. It was almost yeah. like kind of a militaristic approach to it, albeit on centering the female body and a specific type of femininity and etherealness and exactly. so forth. You had an incredible career of 28 years as a dancer. Um, I think people, even outside of dance, can understand the toll what it takes on your body. How did you do that? Well, uh, it was love. Uh, ballet is very hard and you have to knock yourself out every single day. And yes, there is a certain amount of pain, there's a certain amount of physical and mental anguish to that. But I was getting to do what I love to do. And the challenge of becoming better than I was yesterday was something that I, you know, it's like candy for me. Anything that remains a pain point for you or something undone or anything you wish you had done that you weren't able to do? This is going to sound really very egotistical, but I, I wish I had um, had a lot more confidence in myself because I would have been a greater dancer than I was. How did that understanding come to you? I had to get old. Hmm. I was so full of doubt about every single thing that I did that I, I, I really did spoil things for myself. But I did keep trying. And I finally got old enough that I was doing performances. You know, when I was, Giselle came to me, um, I, was, I was in my late 30s when Giselle came to me very old. So I at least had that little bit of awareness, self-awareness that I was like, okay, you're getting to do this, you sure better do it. 
What made this the time to step away? Oh, I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) You're not old, you're seasoned. Okay. No, um, it was because this company needs a more challenge, needs a new challenge, needs a vision. Robert Garland, uh, we danced together in the, in our, in the day with the, with the company, but Robert Garland is an amazing choreographer. He's somebody who's got the pulse, his pulse on American culture. And when I talk about American culture, I'm talking about African-American culture, classical American culture, um, American culture as we want it to evolve to be, which is representative of the people who are in this nation. And Robert is a young man who has access to that kind of vision. So it wasn't about me stepping down. It was about what does this organization need now to really keep thriving? Virginia Johnson, thank you for your beautiful career. And thank you so much for talking with us today. It's my pleasure. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBWAR's Morning Edition. Boston-area hospitals are taking the fight against climate change to their own cafeterias by encouraging staff not to eat meat. It's 7.29. As you're heading out the door today, use the WBWAR app to keep listening live. It lets you it lets you pause and even rewind if you miss, miss something. Find the WBUR app in your app store today. WBUR supporters include members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The death toll in Ukraine has risen to at least 10 following yesterday's Russian missile strike that leveled a restaurant in the eastern city of Kramatorsk. Several children are among the dead. More than 50 others were wounded in the attack, condemned by Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Yuri Sak is an advisor to Ukraine's defense ministry. They are most of the times targeting civilian objects. They falsely hope that this will break our will, make us more negotiable and agreeable. But this will never happen because every attack like this only makes Ukrainians more angry and makes our army more determined to continue to liberate our land. Sack was speaking to the BBC. More than a half dozen states are under air quality alerts today because of smoke from wildfires in Canada. Once again, smoke is drifting over the upper Midwest, the Northeast, and the Mid-Atlantic. Alexander Samworth says he's doing his best to continue riding his bike in Chicago. I have worn the mask as much as possible outside, um, but... I know people who I spoke to at work today, they said they felt like their chest was tighter, uh, particularly people who have asthma. For a time yesterday, Chicago, Milwaukee, and Detroit had some of the nation's worst air quality. This is NPR News from Washington. 
This is WBOR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thousands of immigrants living in Massachusetts are about to get the chance to apply for a driver's license for the first time. A new law takes effect Saturday that allows people to get a license regardless of immigration status. As WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports, the Registry of Motor Vehicles is staffing up to meet the demand. As many as 85,000 people will get their licenses under this law, named the Work and Family Mobility Act, by 2026. At the Registry of Motor Vehicles, Registrar Colleen Ogilvie says licenses issued under this law will not show a person's legal status. The licenses are going to look like any other standard driver's license that we issue today. There'll be nothing on it that differentiates it from any other license. Ogilvy says the RMV is translating materials into 15 languages, extending hours, and adding staff to prepare for the anticipated influx of people seeking licenses. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. State education officials say they were, quote, blindsided about plans to move one of Boston's exam schools. The city wants to move the John D. O'Brien School from Roxbury to West Roxbury. The state education commissioner tells the Boston Herald there are issues around the plan that still need to be figured out. BPS says the move would create a modern STEM campus. Those against the proposal say it could increase commute time for students and hurt students of color. There will be a ceremonial ribbon-cutting on the new GLX community path in Somerville. That path for cyclists and pedestrians runs, runs alongside the new Green Line extension. It also connects to other major bicycle routes in the area. The path formerly, formally opened two weeks ago, more than six months after the Green Line extension itself opened. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. The Red Sox got routed by the Miami Marlins last night at Fenway. The final score was 10 to 1. The teams will meet again tonight. It's raining across Boston at this hour, and there's a chance of showers and thunderstorms all day today. Otherwise, mostly cloudy with highs in the low 80s. Tonight, more rain is possible, and it falls to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, more showers and storms possible, but skies may clear a bit to let in some sun. We'll have high temperatures near 80. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown, season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Zoom. Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect. Zoom One. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faden. The short mutiny by the Wagner mercenary group in Russia is over for now, but in its wake, there are signs of discord in Russia's military. A report from the New York Times says that a senior Russian general knew of Yevgeny Prigozhin's plans to stage his rebellion, according to U.S. officials. So how much did that march toward Moscow, led by a one-time ally, hurt Russian President Vladimir Putin's strongman image? To understand this, I called up John Seifer, who once ran Russia operations for the CIA and is now a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. 
there's a sense of dysfunction in the military in Ukraine. But what this does is it adds a sense of dysfunction and incompetence domestically. You know, if he lets Prigozhin go, he looks weak. You know, one minute he's calling him a scum traitor and Prigozhin shot down Russian helicopters and next minute he's gone. But if he tries to kill Prigozhin, that's dangerous too because Prigozhin has shown himself to have some real populist appeal. He has this strong narrative that the Russian leaders are fat cats with yachts and children in Europe and they're sending Russian boys to be slaughtered in Ukraine. So Putin has to worry that, you know, if he kills them, there's a lot of people who buy into that strong narrative. And stability in Russia is a concern. They have a massive number of nuclear weapons, among other problems. What do you think Prigozhin's fate is when he is such a threat to Putin? Prigozhin doesn't come out a winner in this either. As you know, he was trying to actually strengthen Wagner in the system, and it looks like he's weakened it. It looks like he was hoping people would rally to him, and they didn't. But this is also part of the problem of Putin creating this system where they repress and oppress the people so that they hold off any kind of protest. Regimes that rule by fear, they live in fear. They fear that the people aren't going to support them when push comes to shove. Prigozhin, what do you think his calculations were? Was it a way to protect himself? These people are essentially mob bosses, and they're not necessarily the smartest folks around. A dictator doesn't want to keep the best and brightest around because they're a threat, and so he needs people that he can control and are weak. So Prigozhin was essentially a low-level thug from St. Petersburg, and he was in prison for like 10 years in the 80s, and Putin created him to do things for him, but it got to the point where I think Prigozhin saw that his influence and power was being pulled away, and he lashed out in this way. It does seem like U.S. intelligence has been pretty consistently accurate on Russia military movements. And apparently, reportedly, they knew that this was a possibility a couple days before it actually happened. So it seems like the U.S. has pretty good intelligence on the Russian military right now. Is that your impression as well? Yeah, I think that's true. And in some ways, Prigozhin's views have been in public sight for all of us to watch. It's just a matter of watching to see if there's movement among his troops. I think we have pretty good insight. And we get a lot of benefit from our cooperation with Ukraine because they lived in the Soviet Union. They understand Russians. And I think we're listening more to those folks that have been in and around Russia because they've been getting this kind of disinformation and cyber attacks and all the kind of stuff that the KGB officer Vladimir Putin has been doing to us for years and years, and we often didn't pay attention. When you're watching this, what is it that most concerns you as you look forward? Because it sounds like you don't think this is over. I think there's been incompetence and dysfunction in Ukraine. Now there, we see incompetence, weakness, and dysfunction at home. Vladimir Putin sees Russia as himself, and so he sees threats to himself as threats to Russia, and that's the dangerous thing here. Even in the Soviet Union, there was a Politburo, there's others. If the leader got out of hand, there was a way of sort of a communal group coming together to make decisions. Here, a lot of it's just in Vladimir Putin's head. It is a danger here. I think it's a longer-term danger. He has to worry about the loyalty of, of folks around him now. Mm-hmm. He's sort of a cornered rat, if you will. John Seifert, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a foreign policy intelligence and national security expert. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks. The president of Honduras is ordering a crackdown on gangs. The government released images showing police going cell to cell in jails, moving prisoners around and searching. They've also thrown up roadblocks in the streets and made mass arrests. NPR's Ada Peralta is covering all this from his base in Mexico City. Ada, good morning. Hey, good morning, Steve. What led to this crackdown? 
Honduras just had a gruesome week. Uh, it started with a, a gang attack on a women's prison uh, just outside the capital, Tegucigalpa, and that left 46 women dead. Wow. Some had been burned to death, others shot, others stabbed. The president, Xiomara Castro, said that the attack had been planned by gangs, but she said, quote, under the watchful eye and with the approval from prison authorities. And then this past weekend, uh, more carnage. At least 20 people were dead, including 13 people when a gunman opened fire at a pool hall. Okay, so how is the government trying to root gangs out? So look, they, they had tried to get this violence under control in the past. Uh, at the end of last year, they suspended some civil rights in some parts of the country, but then we had all this violence. And after the attack on the women's prison, President Xiomara Castro promised, quote, drastic measures, and now we know what she meant by that. Police, as you said, have set up roadblocks, they've announced a curfew, and they're working their way through the prisons. They've confiscated knives and grenades and assault rifles, and police have released videos showing inmates just in their boxers being lined up outside, they're being made to cower, and all you see is this mass of tattooed flesh. And those images are almost exactly what we've seen in El Salvador. They've gone after their gangs viciously. They've suspended their civil rights. They've tortured uh, the gang members and they've kept them in overcrowded prisons. Um, and Gustavo Sanchez, who is the director general of the police in Honduras, uh, gave a speech that seems to promise more of this. Let's listen. En los próximos días se remitirá una propuesta al soberano Congreso Nacional. So he's saying that in the next few days, uh, they will send a proposal to Congress to declare any gang member a terrorist. And of course, that's the same thing that El Salvador calls uh, its gang members. Uh, I remember some of your amazing reporting from El Salvador on some of the extreme measures the government has taken there, even though many people did support those extreme measures. Honduras is going for the same thing? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that that is exactly what's happening, um, but in a limited way. Um, El Salvador has fully suspended certain civil rights, and they've done so for over a year. Uh, but Honduras has only done it for parts of the country, so they, they seem to be crawling toward El Salvador. And I think that's why it's important to watch these developments, um, because the security situation is in a pretty dire uh, way in a lot of Latin American countries. So, I mean, of course, people see the human rights abuses that are happening in El Salvador, but a lot of analysts I've spoken to say that people are so sick of crime that they're willing to sacrifice democracy or personal freedoms if it means that they can sleep easy at night. And Perzader Peralta, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. This is NPR News. It's a Wednesday on WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour, the Supreme Court has rejected a legal theory that could have radically reshaped how federal elections are conducted by giving state lawmakers more power. It's raining in Boston this morning and throughout the day and into the evening. There's a chance of showers and thunderstorms overcast and in the low 80s today. Tonight, mid-60s. Then tomorrow, partly sunny and near 80 with more showers possible. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. 
An Andover-based mail-order pharmacy must pay $10 million to settle allegations it improperly filed filled opioid prescriptions. As part of the deal, injured workers' pharmacy admitted it failed to address so-called red flags displayed by some customers. Federal prosecutors say that indicated their opioid prescriptions may not have been legitimate. The pharmacy has also agreed to a five-year plan to correct the issue. Boston-based Vantage Travel is laying off an unspecified number of employees. The cuts come weeks after the cruise and tour company said it was negotiating a sale. Employees tell the Boston Globe that sale isn't happening on the expected timetable, which is why Vantage said it was making the cuts. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Term at Boston University. With a wide range of courses in math and science, including pre-med offerings in biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics. BU also offers over 50 math courses, statistics, calculus, probability, linear algebra, differential equations, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There were lots of complaints about meatless Mondays. Vegetarian stir-fry was never a big seller. And any dish with vegan in the name pretty much only attracted vegans. So when Brigham and Women's Faulkner Hospital pledged to cut food-related emissions 25 percent by 2030, chefs stepped up efforts to rebrand those climate-friendly foods. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has more on what they learned. Andrea Venable pauses at a tasting table outside the Faulkner Hospital cafeteria, picks up a small plastic cup, and looks inside. It almost kind of looked like it was noodles, like she said. So, I don't know, I'll try it, see how it is. Venable, who works with parking services, has noticed the hospital offering more plant-based foods in the cafeteria. What do you think about that? I think it's good for the people that eat, you know, vegetarian, Venable is not one of them. I like meat. Have you been trying to do less? No, no, no. <laughs> Therein lies the challenge, because beef and the occasional order of lamb make up just 5% of food purchased by the Faulkner, but these meats represent 56% of the hospital's food-related greenhouse gas emissions. So to reduce emissions, the hospital is trying to persuade employees and patients to eat less meat. The strategies, starting with the staff, are subtle, even a bit stealth. We're celebrating what's in the dish as opposed to what's been taken out of it. Susan Langell is food services director at both the Faulkner and its affiliate Brigham and Women's Hospital. Today's soba noodle stir-fry with shiitake mushrooms and mixed vegetables is meat-free. But the elegant signs on the tasting table don't say that to avoid turning off people like Venable. Like you just witnessed, there are a lot of folks who don't necessarily identify as vegan or vegetarian. So there are no more vegetarian burgers or vegan chili. In fact, you won't see the words vegan or vegetarian in the name of any item on the menu. Instead, we're marketing it based on the flavor or the cultural benefits and celebrations of that food. I wasn't expecting it to be warm, so that was nice. Scallions add a little crunch. Oh, I think it's delicious. Emily Dumont's on a break from setting casts, braces, and splints. Like Venable, she's not interested in giving up meat, but climate change weighs on her. I believe in it, you know, so I'm happy to adjust my diet as well if it means eating less meat to help out the planet. That sentiment is more common these days. 
Langell says people who wouldn't change their diet to improve their own health are doing it for others. It's a little bit more altruistic in that way. They're putting the earth and the future generations before their own health necessarily. In many ways. Matt Wilson is an operating room nurse. The greatest thing about the vegan meals is they could be huge plates, but you never feel that full, so it doesn't make you too groggy in the OR. At home, Wilson and his wife have started eating vegan once a week. They're getting used to friends' jokes. They all always laugh at me when I tell them I eat vegan meals, but that's okay. Slowly they'll convert. I got faith. To speed up that conversion, the Faulkner is doing some obvious and not-so-obvious things. Vegetarian dishes might be first in a buffet line. There's often a vegetarian option, perhaps eggplant parm, right next to the chicken parm. Contests, like asking staff to try one plant-based special for 30 days in a row, are popular. The next frontier, new patient menus at both the Faulkner and the Brigham. We're looking at offering foods more as a, an item, like a taco or a burger, and then they can select, is it a, a vegetarian or black bean burger, or is it a beef burger, or is it even chicken or turkey burger? The Faulkner is already experimenting with specials on the patient's menu. Langell pulls up an example. We had an apple overnight oats, a roasted edamame salad, a teriyaki tofu and grilled pineapple wrap, and then we had chili con carne, so that one had meat. The strategies are paying off. Meat as a percentage of the Faulkner's food purchases is down by almost a third in the three years since the hospital started tracking food-related greenhouse gases. The goal, again, is 25% fewer emissions related to the production and delivery of those foods by 2030. The Faulkner isn't close yet, but Langell is optimistic. 25% by the year 2030 is manageable. Mm -hmm. As long as we continue to do things like this and convince people to change their habits. So far, Langell says she hasn't heard any complaints. Unlike the last big change, when the hospital got rid of fries and chicken nuggets. You came back for another one. It's good, man, it's good. On cue, Andrea Venable, the enthusiastic meat-eater, strolls past the tasting table again. I gotta say, it's good. Really good. Maybe that's the obvious lesson as cooks and cafeterias experiment with more plant-based food. If it tastes good, people will eat it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. You're with WBUR. Coming up at 8.15, the Small Business Administration is questioning a new Inspector General report that finds that billions of dollars in pandemic aid for small businesses went to scammers. It's 7.50. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five. And lift off of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at indeed.com/npr. 
and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. At least 10 people were killed during a Russian rocket strike on a restaurant in eastern Ukraine. More than 80 million people in the Midwest and along the East Coast are under air quality alerts due to smoke from Canadian wildfires. And the Supreme Court rejected a case that argued states have total control over rules in federal elections, but left open the possibility of future challenges. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WB. And on the WBUR mobile app. WBUR supporters include Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners improve energy efficiency. Assessment scheduling at goendlessenergy.com or 775 Endless. Low 80s today with a chance of showers and thunderstorms all day. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. In the next few days, the Supreme Court finishes releasing opinions from this term. Some cases are big. When the rulings are done, the justices may go on vacation. Some justices have been criticized for their past travel, among other things. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg has been following the debate over Supreme Court ethics. Hi there, Nina. Hi there, Steve. What has made ethics the center of so much debate? Well, several justices have failed to disclose, as they're supposed to, what are essentially gifts, private jet travel, luxury vacations at someone else's expense, or real estate transactions that under the Judicial Code of Ethics are supposed to be disclosed. Mm. And last week, we learned from ProPublica that Justice Samuel Alito failed to disclose that he'd enjoyed an all-expense-paid high-end fishing trip to Alaska, complete with transport on a private jet, arranged by conservative activist Leonard Leo and paid for by hedge fund titan Paul Singer, a major Republican donor who not incidentally, has been involved in 10 appeals to the Supreme Court. And then, of course, there is the ethics story or stories involving Justice Clarence Thomas, who just seems to be, if you'll pardon the pun, Steve, the gift that keeps on giving. Okay. And what we now know is that for probably two decades, he and his wife have gone on lavish trips around the globe, courtesy of his friend, Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow, and that Crow paid the private school tuition for a member of his family, in addition to buying properties owned by Thomas. And and none of this was disclosed under the Federal Ethics and Government Act, which does apply to all federal judges, including Supreme Court justices. Nina, I followed this, of course, and didn't Justice Thomas assert that he did not have to disclose some of these things on his financial disclosure forms? He did say that. But Gabe Roth, who runs Fix the Court, which is a nonprofit that advocates for more court transparency, says Thomas did have to disclose some things and may have to make amendments going back because the law on those things are clear. However, for personal hospitality, where the rules were sort of fuzzy, they now have been clarified. So going forward, he'll have to disclose those things, too. I doubt that Thomas will look backward and amend his disclosures. Is it pure coincidence that we are getting multiple questions about multiple justices now? You know, Steve, I've given a lot of thought to this. And it seems to me, if you compare the Supreme Court 40, 50, 75 years ago to now, this is a very different world. 
justices back then were not the most, for the most part, big public figures. They didn't write books or give lots of speeches. And more importantly, we didn't have such a huge coterie of enormously wealthy people, often tied to political parties, trying to get close to them. Admittedly, in the old days, the justices had political friends and they played poker at the White House. Washington is, or at least was then, a very chummy town. But the justices did rule against their political pals. And if they got too close, as Justice Abe Fortas did with President Johnson, for instance, he ultimately had to resign. Now look at today. You have these billionaires, lots of them, who want to build bridges to certain members of the court. They want bragging rights about knowing them. And even if they don't actually discuss Supreme Court cases, they want the proximity. And indirectly, you know, they're hoping for some degree of influence. So we've been talking up to now about wealthy individuals getting close to Supreme Court justices. But I think it's fair to ask, Nina, since we're talking about financial disclosures, are the justices themselves generally wealthy individuals? Well, if they really cared about money, they would not be judges making $274,000 a year when they could be making easily 10 times that much in the private sector. I know to most people that sounds insane, but that's true. We do know a fair amount about the state of their wealth because they have to file these financial disclosure forms for their investments, real estate transactions, book and teaching income. Okay, so who has the most and least? Well, the Chief Justice definitely is the top of the most. Remember, he spent 12 years at an elite law firm earning annually what would be in today's dollars as much as $1.7 million a year, and, and now his wife is bringing in big bucks as a legal recruiter. Because most judges try to avoid having individual stocks, Roberts has basically all index funds or various sorts of mutual funds where he doesn't control the investments and he won't have conflicts of interest. But, and there's a big but, the way these investments are reported on the financial disclosure forms is by ranges. So when you add up all of the John Roberts investments, you get an insane investment range of $10 million to $30 million. Hmm. Now, none of the other justices are anywhere close to that. And we have no idea if Robert's real total is at the low end or the high end. Okay. In any case, a good amount of money. Who has the least? Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Elena Kagan. Kavanaugh lists investments of fifteen to $65,000. Even with his teaching income capped at $30,000, he's probably the most strapped. He lives in a modest and relatively small house, and his wife has a part-time job. In fact, during the pandemic, except for the chief justice, Kavanaugh was the only justice who actually worked at the court, because with two teenagers at home, it was just too hard to concentrate. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And Justice Kagan owns a condo in Washington, but she rents out the parking space that comes with the apartment for between fifteen and fifty thousand dollars, likely closer to fifteen. And she has investments, a great many of them, in IRAs and perhaps other retirement accounts, in the range of one point six to three point five million. Okay. I know you pointed out that their salaries are limited compared to what they could get in the private sector, but can't they get big book advances and royalties? Yes, and they do, five of them. There's no limit on that, and five of the justices have made, um, at the low end, close to a million, and at the high end, several million dollars from book advances and royalties. Nina, thanks so much. I'm sure we'll be back here again, Steve, talking about ethics again. I'll be looking forward to that. And Pierce Nina Totenberg. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. Happy are you to those celebrating today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at LaCuchara.com. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Rescue workers are searching the rubble of a crowded pizza restaurant in eastern Ukraine that was hit with Russian missiles, killing at least 10 people. It's Wednesday, June 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Supreme Court has ruled against a move that would have given state lawmakers power over federal elections. This is a very forceful repudiation of the premises of the independent state legislature idea. Also this hour, Massachusetts residents will soon be able to apply for driver's licenses regardless of immigration status. We follow some learning the rules of the road. In Brazil, for example, you can't turn right on the red. Here, you can. When I saw this, I said, oh my God, it's so different. And the U.S. is seeing its first new cases of malaria in 20 years. Cloudy and 80s today with storms possible. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The heat gripping the southern U.S. is forecast to persist until next week. Texas has been very hard hit. From member station KUT in Austin, most Bushell reports the heat struck just as Texas state lawmakers ended required water breaks for some workers. Dallas and Austin had mandated that construction workers get water breaks in hot weather, but a new law signed by Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott says cities can't pass rules that go beyond statewide standards. That means no guaranteed breaks in the heat that has welder Andre Southall worried. You know, you can't just tell a construction worker that's working in 100 degree heat, the heat index being 112, 15, that they can't stop and take water. That's, that's unrealistic. That's, that's cruel and unusual punishment. The extreme heat has already led to deaths in Texas, including nine deaths in eight days in Webb County around Laredo, according to the medical examiner there. I'm Mose Bouchel in Austin. Separately, air quality is very poor in several parts of the country today. That's because of wildfire smoke drifting south from Canada. There are alerts for all of Iowa and Wisconsin. More air alerts are posted in the Midwest and for parts of the East Coast. President Biden is set to give a speech today in Chicago to lay out his economic agenda. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, the White House has started calling it Bidenomics. The White House is selling Bidenomics as a catch-all for the president's economic policies, including big pieces of legislation passed in the first two years of his administration that are gradually taking effect. Lael Brainerd is director of the president's National Economic Council. The president will highlight the historic labor market recovery and what it's meant for workers and families that were too often left behind in previous recoveries. He'll talk about the steps that his administration is taking to educate and empower American workers. 
A challenge for Biden as he runs for re-election is many Americans still have a very sour view of the U.S. economy. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is tracking five cases of malaria in the U.S. Four of them were in Florida, one was in Texas. People in the U.S. who get malaria usually contract it after traveling to another country where it is common. But NPR's Ping Huang says the CDC reports these cases were locally transmitted in the U.S. Experts think that what's happened is that a few factors align. So maybe there was an influx of travelers who came back with malaria, got bitten by mosquitoes in the U.S. Maybe that's coincided with a lot of rain, a lot of heat and humidity. These are conditions that mosquitoes and the malaria parasites really thrive under. And probably what happened is that these forces combined to cause a flare of cases. NPR's Ping Huang reporting. This is NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. State lawmakers are considering a renewed push for a moratorium on new prison construction. Almost two dozen incarcerated people testified during a hearing that ran almost six hours yesterday. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Jasmine Rivera said she's been in and out of prison for decades, mostly for drug-related crimes. She's currently at MCI Framingham. Rivera told the Joint Legislative Committee that the estimated $50 million to be spent on a new woman's prison would be better used for programs to help those incarcerated. When the judge sentenced me, he told me it was to, to get rehabilitation and, um, you know, to get things together. Well, that's definitely not what happened when I got here. A similar bill was vetoed last year by former Governor Baker. The Department of Correction said in a statement no final decisions have been made about women's housing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Seven Massachusetts-based construction firms are pledging to promote the adoption of battery-powered vehicles across the state. The companies all signed on to the construction EV charger pledge. By doing so, they've agreed to install at least one electric vehicle charger at their place of business and at all construction sites. Proponents say the pledge will help the industry meet its sustainability goals. Leaders with the NAACP hope bringing their annual convention to Boston will help showcase the city's deep black history. The convention will begin July 26th. The group's national leaders here were here yesterday to preview the event. National President Derek Johnson says the convention comes as civil rights are under attack nationwide. We work to secure a future where everyone can ex- exercise their civil and human rights in every aspect of life, education, health, criminal justice, and the environment without discrimination. That's why this convention is a sacred space for us. Johnson noted that the first branch of the organization was established in Boston in 1915. A 32-year-old woman accused of impersonating a student and attending Boston high schools will face criminal charges. A report obtained by the Boston Globe shows the state is charging the woman with counts related to fraud and forgery. State officials say the woman was a former state social worker. They say no students or staff were harmed while she was posing as a student, although the incident remains under investigation. It's 8.06. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. 
Learn more at zquill.com. The Red Sox fell to the Miami Marlins 10-1 last night at Fenway. The two teams will play again tonight. It's raining north of Boston right now, and there's a chance for showers or storms throughout the day. It'll be in the 80s, cloudy overnight with temperatures in the 60s, partly sunny tomorrow with another chance for rain near 80. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Twice in recent days, the Supreme Court has declined to endorse creative interpretations of the Constitution. Both times, the legal theories were embraced by Republican-led states. Both times, they would have given extra power to Republican state officials. In one case, states said they could force the federal government to enforce immigration law in a certain way. By an 8-to-1 majority, the court said no. In yesterday's case, state lawmakers said they could make partisan election rules and courts could have nothing to say about it. By 6-3, to three, the Supreme Court said no. Rick Pildes is following all this. He is an elections expert and a professor of constitutional law at New York University. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you, Steve. Is there something of a theme emerging here? Well, I think what this term is showing is that uh, for those who had a fairly simplistic narrative in their head about the Roberts Court, that any case involving voting rights would be one in which the court rejected the claims of plaintiffs, supported the claims of Republican legislatures. Uh, this term you know, indicates that's, that's too simplistic a story. Uh, the court has rejected in a number of these cases uh, claims from Republican legislatures, uh, both in the voting rights area and, as you mentioned, uh, in the area of immigration policy. Let's talk about this most recent ruling, which is the one having to do with what was called the independent state legislature theory. They, the North Carolina legislature was basing its argument on a sentence in the Constitution saying that state legislatures shall set up election rules. And they said that means that we have the right to do it. State courts have nothing to say about it. Was there any, uh, was, in, in your mind, was, was there any leg to stand on for that argument? There was a basis for believing the court might accept this claim because several justices in separate statements in the last few years had indicated some support for the doctrine. But I think when the court actually confronted the huge range of implications that would follow from embracing this doctrine, uh, I think the court backed away uh, and reaffirmed what has been the, the practice throughout our history, which is state legislatures are constrained by their state constitutions, even in the context of regulating federal elections. I was interested in reading uh, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts' ruling on this, his opinion on this. Uh, he went into the history, as justices always do, especially now, to, to see what was the context in the early years in the United States. And he says that even before Marbury versus Madison, this famous ruling that people learn about in school, saying that courts have the right to review uh, laws for their constitutionality, this was an American tradition, that it goes back even before that. Yes, this was an interesting case because it actually pitted sort of originalists against textualists. So the argument for this doctrine was based almost entirely on the words in the text of the Constitution that mentioned the state legislature having the power to regulate. But historically, there's been almost no support for this doctrine in practice. 
And there's certainly no support for it at the time the Constitution was written. So Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts relied on the lack of historical support for the doctrine as a major prong in his analysis for the court as to why the court uh, rejected the strong version of the doctrine at issue in the case. I want to ask about uh, another case that's on your mind, I know. There was an Alabama case having to do with redistricting, which fits into this pattern of the Supreme Court pushing back state legislatures, doesn't it? Yes, just uh, a little while ago, we had another decision from the Roberts Court. Uh, In that case, the Republican legislature of Alabama was resisting the argument that the Voting Rights Act required the creation of a second uh, ability to elect district for African-Americans in Alabama. Uh, The court uh, upheld the claim of the Voting Rights Act plaintiffs in that case. Uh, So again, rejecting the claim of a Republican legislature in an area of direct political distribution of power. I'd also mention there's a whole series of cases in the last decade from the Roberts Court, from Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Alabama, similarly rejecting claims of Republican legislatures, uh, coming down with decisions that actually further the interests of minority voters and, in fact, Democrats. Uh, so the this, this story is a little bit more complicated than, than some of the narrative uh, about the court. Can I ask one question from, I guess, the Republican legislator's point of view? I could imagine being a Republican legislator and saying, I, even though you accuse me of going against democracy here and trying to rig the game in my favor, I'm actually for democracy because the legislature was elected and the majority of the legislature voted for this and courts should not get in the way. Is there an argument that can be made from that side of the issue that state legislatures should just be deciding a lot more things? That is a sympathetic account uh, of the position of the state legislatures uh, in this case. Uh, But, uh, you know, again, state legislatures have always had to operate pursuant to their state constitutions. As Chief Justice Roberts says, that has been a foundational principle of the American constitutional system. Uh, And this area of law is no exception to that principle. that's That's the main point of the decision yesterday. Uh, the state constitutions continue to constrain state legislatures with when they're regulating federal elections. Rick Pildes is a professor of constitutional law at New York University. It's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. A federal watchdog has a new estimate out for the scale of fraud during the pandemic, and the figure is eye-popping, $200 billion. That's how much it says was potentially stolen from the taxpayer-funded Small Business Administration. The SBA calls that number an exaggeration. And Pierre's Martin Costi has the story. As the economy went into lockdown in early 2020, the government was in a hurry to save small businesses with loans especially the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP loans, most of which were later forgiven and covered by tax dollars. And in this rush, the government didn't do much to check to see if the businesses it was saving were real. I would say even in the very early weeks, we could and should have done a better job. Sam Kruger is an assistant professor of finance at the University of Texas, Austin, where he's been researching pandemic fraud. He says the government already has in-house the kind of data you'd need to better screen people applying for these loans. They have things like employer ID numbers that they're able to match to other government data sources. They're also able to look at cases where somebody claims to have employees but doesn't have an EIN. Now the Office of Inspector General for the SBA has looked at that information after the money already went out the door. It's analyzed data such as applicants' computer addresses, phone numbers, and bank accounts, and it's identified patterns that suggest fraud in at least $200 billion worth of the loans. 
That's more than 17% of all the money the SBA dispersed. The Biden administration, though, is pushing back. It says potential fraud is not the same as actual fraud. If you see a wrong social security number or a wrong employment identification number, you should investigate further. That could be potential fraud. Other times it could be just an innocent typo. Gene Sperling is a senior advisor to the president and coordinator of the American Rescue Plan. He thinks when all this potential fraud is examined more closely, the amount will turn out to be lower. The SBA is estimating that likely fraud is closer to $36 billion. The number is significantly less, but whether it's, you know, $36 billion or $56 billion, it's still unacceptable, it's outrageous, it's too high. The administration also says that most of the fraud, almost 90 percent, happened during the first nine months of the pandemic under President Trump. Katie Frost is the deputy associate administrator in the Office of Capital Access at SBA, and she says it now uses some of the data checks that have been recommended by the inspector general. Several of the fraud indicators from the OIG's report we did put in place in real time prior to approval for PPP. For instance, she says the SBA has started checking loan applications for name mismatches and employer identification numbers. And money that was stolen is being clawed back, at least some of it. The OIG report found that ongoing investigations have resulted in 800 arrests and almost $30 billion has been recovered. The question that remains, though, is how does that compare to the grand total of stolen money? So far, that's still in dispute. Martin Costi, NPR News. This week, the White House said how it will divide $42 billion that Congress set aside to improve broadband Internet access among the states. This funding from the government will likely have the biggest impact in conservative rural areas. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports. Speaking in the Rose Garden, President Joe Biden likened the initiative to the 1936 Rural Electrification Act. Today, Kamala and I are making an equally historic investment to connect everyone in America everyone in America, the high-speed internet, by an affordable high-speed internet, by 2030. Most places in America that lack high-speed internet are rural. Fewer than 6% of Montanans have access to fiber optic service, says Tyler Cooper with the research and advocacy group Broadband Now. He agrees the Infrastructure Act funding is historic. It is, you know, the most holistic approach to closing the digital divide in the U.S. ever. Lots of Republican senators from rural states voted against the Infrastructure Act, but rural Republican governors are embracing the broadband money. Broadband access at this point is seen as vital to economic development. Eric Riley teaches political science at Montana State University. There seems to be real demand for it in rural areas, which feel like they've been left behind in some respects. Montana's Governor Greg Gianforte says broadband is crucial for good-paying jobs, education, and affordable health care. Montana is set to get more than $600 million. Tyler Cooper with Broadband Now says previous funding often didn't reach those most in need because Internet companies decided where to expand their networks. This funding, he says, is different. It takes a state-centric approach to the issue for the first time. Now, each state will be required to craft plans with public input and get federal approval before the money is distributed. Handing the reins to these sort of state broadband offices and having them in charge of putting together a plan with local communities is just about the best way I could think of to try and uh, make this more effective. 
Among states set to receive more than a billion dollars each to expand broadband are Alabama, Alaska, and West Virginia. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, we're nearing the end of Pride Month when many companies show their support for the LGBT plus community. But this year, some are reconsidering that support after right-wing protests and threats of violence. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. In 1956, a federal judge ordered the town of Clinton, Tennessee, to desegregate its high school. By the end of the week, the entire town had exploded. The National Guard had to come in. Eventually, the school was bombed and destroyed and rebuilt by the evangelist, Billy Graham. The forgotten story of desegregation in Clinton, Tennessee. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The latest episode of our podcast, The Common, is out. Today, a closer look at the toxic culture behind the scenes at some of Boston's restaurants and a conversation about how it might be changed. Host Daryl C. Murphy gets answers from industry insiders. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. It's raining north of Boston right now, and there's a chance of showers and thunderstorms all day. We'll have a high near 82. Tonight, a slight chance of more rain, otherwise mostly cloudy with a low around 66. Tomorrow, partly sunny, a high near 80 with a chance of showers. It's 70 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From the Kaufman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. From Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from the Doris Duke Foundation, All right, you've made it to Wednesday, and this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Layla Falden. In Atlanta, the fight over whether to build a new police training facility dubbed Cop City has gotten more dangerous. One activist was killed by police in January, and now officials are accusing others of being, quote, domestic terrorists. The use of that charge is alarming civil liberties and human rights groups across the country. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef reports. Luke Harper finally left Georgia in early June. He had gone there for a music festival protesting Cop City. He figured it would just be a weekend. But on his second night, he and nearly two dozen others were arrested and accused of being domestic terrorists. I was released on day 90, which is basically the last day that they could legally keep me incarcerated without an indictment. 
Atlanta's police chief claimed the arrests were related to vandalism that had happened earlier in the day. At the location of the proposed facility, a different site, some people had torched a construction vehicle and thrown Molotov cocktails at police. Harper says he had nothing to do with that, and that over multiple bond hearings and a preliminary hearing, the state offered no evidence to connect him to those crimes. The Atlanta Police Department didn't make itself available for an interview. But even without formal charges or evidence, Harper has been called a domestic terrorist by law enforcement. And just going through the airport in Atlanta to leave, he noticed a change. I'm a person of color. I have been patted down many times at the airport. It was nothing necessarily new, but 40 to 45 minutes going through my things. It happened at security. It happened again at his gate, and then again in Salt Lake City, where he had a layover. Harper noticed his boarding pass had something new. In the lower corner, four S's, Secondary Security Screening Selection. The TSA doesn't say why someone is selected, but Harper thinks he's been flagged to local and federal agencies. Atlanta officials who support the new construction say it's time to replace the city's deteriorating public safety training facilities. But when it became known that it would be more than twice as large as other police training campuses, that it would require raising 85 acres of old-growth forest, that it would cost tens of millions of dollars more than initially disclosed— and that much funding would come from Atlanta-based multinational corporations, the ideological left was activated. Matt Scott is a journalist with the Atlanta Community Press Collective. You have the fight against environmental defense. You have the fight for racial equality. You have the fight against capitalism. uh, And, of course, you have the fight against police militarization or the fight for abolition. That last concern about how this massive campus might further militarize police has felt salient to many in the movement. In January, a Georgia State Patrol officer killed an activist named Manuel Tehran while clearing an encampment of Cop City protesters. Police claim Tehran had shot and injured an officer. But autopsy results from the DeKalb County Medical Examiner's Office have called that into question. This past Saturday, activists gathered again to kick off a week of action against Cop City. As kids played on a bouncy house and people made protest art, the police cruisers in the area were conspicuous. That evening, uniformed officers appeared in the park. A couple dozen assembled in a line, and there was briefly a stunned silence as they walked toward the protesters. It's just a friendly reminder to let everybody know that the park will be closing at 11 o'clock and everything has to be um, removed from the park at that time. But many said it didn't feel friendly. The police had been circling in their vehicles all day and the very moment they appeared in the park was just when the vigil was starting for slain activist Manuel Tehran, known to them as Tortuguita. Don't worry, folks, it's all under control. Atlanta has a history of activists whose ideas challenge the authority of the state. And as police tensely walked the length of the park, surrounded by angry demonstrators, Kiana Jones summoned some of that history. Ain't gonna let nobody 
Dr. King was labeled an outside agitator at some point, and he's born right here in the city of Atlanta, just like I am. Jones says Republican leaders in Georgia are invoking the same language now, describing demonstrators as outside agitators. But she says it's inaccurate. She herself lived right next to the training facility site and had to move away because the police were already using it for target training. The constant gunfire created chronic stress for her eight-year-old son. But Attorney General Chris Carr has leaned hard on the outside agitator narrative. Here he is in an interview on Atlanta TV station WANF. If you come to this state, engage in acts of violence to destroy infrastructure and property with the uh, intended effect of changing public policy, it is a domestic terrorism charge. But Lauren Regan of the Civil Liberties Defense Center says many states have terrorism statutes and they can be misused. They claim that they're passing these types of laws to deal with mass shooting and like mass murder of civilian populations, but yet legislators are using it as a cudgel against political activists and against people who dissent against state power. There may be signs that the prosecution is now struggling with how to charge cop city defendants. So far, none of the 42 accused of domestic terrorism has been indicted. And late last week, one of the two offices prosecuting them abruptly recused itself from the case. One of the defendants is challenging the constitutionality of Georgia's domestic terrorism statute. Meanwhile, opponents of Cop City see one last legal avenue to stop the project. They're gathering signatures for a referendum that could potentially stop the plan altogether. Odette Youssef, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Beginning next week, people in Massachusetts will be able to get a driver's license regardless of immigration status. We'll hear about preparations for that change. It's 829. Comedian Bethany Van Delft will host the Moth Story Slam on Tuesday, July 11th. Get tickets for the event at CitySpace at WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Air quality alerts are posted in the upper Midwest, the Northeast, and the Mid-Atlantic today because of smoke from wildfires in Canada. Chicago and Detroit are among the cities affected. In Arizona, crews are battling a large wildfire in Scottsdale, where people have been evacuated and homes are threatened. There are structures in immediate threat of this fire. So the crews are doing everything they can to cut line around these homes. That's Tiffany DeVilio with the state's Department of Forestry and Fire Management. President Biden will be in Chicago today to talk about the U.S. economy. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. 
Director of the National Economic Council, Leo Brainerd, says President Biden will outline a strategy that's aimed at promoting competition and growing the nation's middle class. We're making smart investments in America in sectors that are critical to our economic and national security focusing on infrastructure, clean energy, and semiconductors. Biden's speech will be another attempt to boost voters' confidence in the administration as the public remains concerned about the economy and high inflation. Despite low unemployment rates, the president continues to deal with relatively low approval ratings. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts education officials want to make it easier for teachers to get certified. They voted to change licensing regulations in an effort to help address the statewide teacher shortage. The changes will help teachers get certified in special education and English as a second language by bypassing some knowledge tests. The move also includes creating a new license for school nurses. Seven hospitals and universities in Massachusetts are making progress toward a pledge to cut food-related greenhouse gas emissions. WBUR's Martha Biebinger explains what that involves. The focus is on persuading staff, students, and patients to eat less beef, pork, and lamb. At the Faulkner Hospital, for example, it's 5% of food purchases, but 56% of greenhouse gas emissions. Faulkner's Food Services Director Susan Langell says those numbers ignited her interest in cutting back on meat. We still have more work to do, but we are seeing that we're moving the dial and we're reducing the greenhouse gases that we're contributing to based on our purchases. But Faulkner has reduced emissions per calorie 2% in the first year of measuring. Its affiliate Brigham and Women's Hospital has cut 20%. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. Boston Public Library has new video interpretation services at all of its locations. The videos let visitors and library staff communicate in more than 200 languages. The libraries previously used multilingual staff members to provide language support. Library officials say the new services will help them achieve their mission of accessibility and equity. It's 833. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioHeat.com. A rough return to Fenway for the Red Sox. They lost to the Miami Marlins 10-1 to last night. The teams will meet again tonight. The schedule for the Bruins' upcoming season is out. They'll open the season at home on October 11th against Chicago. They'll also have their traditional day-after-Thanksgiving matinee game in November. They'll host Detroit for that game. Showers are moving out of the area right now, and there's a chance of more showers and thunderstorms all day today. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy with highs in the low 80s. Tonight, more rain is possible, and it falls to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, more showers and storms possible, but skies may clear a bit to let in some sun. We'll have high temperatures near 80. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Texas and Florida face five cases of malaria. If you're thinking, wait, malaria is gone from the U.S. Well, it was all but gone. Its disappearance is one of the great public health stories. Many kids learn in school how this country cut back on the mosquito-borne disease. They used insecticides and window screens and good drainage of standing water. But now it seems to be back. And NPR's Ping Huang is covering malaria's reemergence. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. What is unusual about these five cases? Well, Steve, it's really where people got the disease. So each year in the U.S., there's about 2,000 cases of malaria, but all of those are generally travel-related, usually found in people who have come back from countries where malaria is common. Hmm. These five cases are locally transmitted. So these patients got malaria where they live, four in southwest Florida and one in south Texas. And this local transmission is something that the U.S. has not seen in 20 years. So that prompted the CDC to send out an alert to doctors telling them to look out for more cases. Uh, People have seen so little malaria. I have to ask, for those who don't know, what it is. So it's a disease that's caused by a parasite and it's carried by mosquitoes. It's transmitted between people through mosquito bites. After someone gets bitten, it can take a week or a few weeks for symptoms to show. Dr. Monica Paris with the CDC says then it can quickly become a medical emergency. We don't want people to have traveled to a malarious area and then get a fever and just sit at home. Or if you seek care and have been given a diagnosis and you're not getting better, you need to go back. Do you know what's changed? Why we would see these cases now? That's an open question. I mean, experts think that a few factors align. So maybe there was an influx of travelers who came back with malaria, got bitten by mosquitoes in the U.S. Maybe that's coincided with a lot of rain, a lot of heat and humidity. These are conditions that mosquitoes and the malaria parasites really thrive under. And probably these forces combine to cause a flare in cases. You know, um, I study a lot of history. So, you know, you read about the 19th century, you read about malaria in the United States. I mean, it, it killed people then, or it would just devastate their health for a long time. How dangerous is this? Well, it depends on the country and also the strain. And so specific to the U.S., around 15 out of every 100 people who get malaria get seriously ill. And every year we do see a few people who die from it. Malaria can be caused by one of five different parasite species. And these cases in the U.S. are caused by one called Plasmodium vivax. Steve, there's good news and there's bad news that comes with that. So the good news is that this is not the most deadly one, although people still can be laid up for weeks with illness. The bad news is that this is a species that can hide out in a person's liver and come back after a few weeks or a few months. And so that makes it extra important for people to get the right diagnosis and take the right drugs so that people can fully kick these parasites. Should we expect that malaria is going to become a larger problem in the United States? Well, there's probably more than five cases, but at the moment, the CDC says they're not expecting a huge outbreak. Malaria, as you mentioned, used to be a big problem in the U.S., and it's actually the reason the CDC was founded back in the 1940s. They did Mm. a lot of work going door to door, and that led to the disease actually being eliminated from the U.S. by the early 1950s. So in the best case scenario, these cases are a blip, but they are checking to make sure that they're not a sign of a bigger problem. NPR's Ping Huang, thanks so much. You're welcome. Big brands have become the most visible battlefields in America's culture wars. During this Pride Month alone, boycotts and protests have focused on Target, Bud Light, Starbucks, and even the Los Angeles Dodgers over LGBTQ support. NPR's Alina Seljuk explores this question. Should brands take positions on social or political issues? 
first thing to specify is that not all companies are brands. Your local grocery store just wants to sell you some snacks. But a brand wants to connect with you on a deep level. You know, my razor sharper, my toothpaste has 25% more fluoride. It's not terribly evocative. Marcus Collins is a marketing expert at the University of Michigan. But if my brand of ice cream tells me that we should dismantle white supremacy, you go, whoa, Nelly. That's a powerful thing. He says the strongest brands want to become part of your identity. Think Apple or Tesla, because this way you might not only buy their stuff, but evangelize for it. Add into the mix social media in a very divided society. We go to greater lengths to signal who we are and who we are not. And when we disagree, we want to distance ourselves dramatically. People boycotted Spotify over disinformation on podcasts. Goya over the CEO's praise of Donald Trump. They burned Nike shoes for supporting Colin Kaepernick, kneeling for the anthem. Now people are calling in bomb threats to Target stores and Bud Light factories. Boardrooms are reconsidering the risks of LGBTQ messaging. You know, it was convenient to put a rainbow in in June because the chances of you getting backlash is low. Today, conservatives are raising the stakes. Ron DeSantis and other Republican presidential candidates are even campaigning on a traditionalist view that companies should stick to the basics, make stuff, sell stuff, and stay out of, quote, woke issues like transgender rights or climate change. Rutgers University law professor Carlos Ball argues this underplays the power of corporate America. I think it's a mistake to view them only as the providers of goods and services, period. They have always been, and they will always be much more than that. Big companies set employment standards and cultural trends. They lobby lawmakers and fund advocacy groups. Corporations were long ahead of courts on LGBTQ workplace rights, for example. And these days, companies face lots of pressure to take a stand. Younger people tell surveys they want to know the values of their brands. Shareholders are starting to push for it, too. There is a belief that you have to pick one side or the other. Kimberly A. Whitler is a longtime marketing executive now at the University of Virginia. But what we're seeing is that that's damaging brands. Boycotts of brands often have little economic impact long-term. People forget and move on. But Whitler says research suggests staking positions on divisive issues can hurt brand reputation. And wanting to take a stand creates a particular conundrum for brands built around mass appeal, which worry about alienating chunks of their audience. Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, these brands were birthed liberal, and it's absolutely fine for them to be liberal. What's challenging is when a company is birthed mass, and then they want to start shifting. Can a big mass brand reach all sides of the ideological spectrum and how? To Whitler, that's the biggest question now. Collins at the University of Michigan argues both sideism is a big reason why the fallout has been so huge for Target and especially Bud Light. The two had spent years supporting the LGBTQ community, but under attack, they flinched, he says. Target pulled Pride-themed clothes, and Bud Light even issued a meandering apology. And not only did they lose the people that they originally pissed off or offended, but then they lost the people they had been supporting for years, all to play to this, this mythological middle. People who are so uninvested, they might choose a different beer just to stay out of the whole thing. I asked him, can a brand appeal to everyone? Everyone? I think that's a myth. There's no such thing as everyone. Though plenty of brands will keep trying, fumbling their way to being both evocative and popular at the same time. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. 
This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report delves into new data on consumer confidence. It's rebounded since pandemic-era lows, but that doesn't necessarily mean spending habits have changed. Storms that brought showers this morning have mostly moved out of the area, although there's a chance of more rain throughout the day. It'll be in the low 80s, tonight mid-60s, then tomorrow partly sunny and near 80 with more showers possible. It's 70 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Union workers at Encore Boston Harbor are expected to continue contract negotiations with resort management today. That's according to the Boston Globe. Just last week, the union overwhelmingly voted to authorize a strike if an agreement is not reached by the end of this week. The Unite Here Local 26 and Teamsters Local 25 unions say the workers' salaries are lower than similar venues in the Boston area. The casino has said it wants to keep negotiations going. Rhode Island-based CVS is settling claims it failed to provide interpretation services at its minute clinics to patients that are deaf or hard of hearing. Doing so is a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The Justice Department says the company has agreed to change its policies to provide those services at all 11,000 of its locations. CVS has not admitted to any wrongdoing. Fruit lovers will not be able to pick their own fruit at many Massachusetts orchards this year. That's because record-breaking cold back in February severely damaged local crops, including cherries, peaches, and plums. Some local farms tell Mass Live they'll try to sell the fruit they were able to grow in their storefronts. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Term at Boston University, offering convenient day, evening, and online scheduling with courses open to working professionals and lifelong learners. Study education, communication, business, project management, computer science, the arts, film and TV, languages, literature, and more. Visit bu.edu summer. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Starting next week, Massachusetts residents will be able to apply for a driver's license regardless of their immigration status. The Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center estimates that under the new state law, up to 85,000 people will get their licenses by the year 2026. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports that some of them are counting down the days until they can head to the registry. Driving without a valid license is a criminal offense in Massachusetts. If you're caught, police can tow your car, you can face fines, and even go to jail. I'm afraid when I drive. No, because I'm driving wrong, or no. But if the police stop me, I don't have nothing. That's Luisa, who grew up in Brazil. We're only using her first name because of her immigration status. She's lived in Massachusetts for 11 years, and she doesn't have a driver's license. Always when I enter the car, I pray to God, say, please help me during the day because I have a son, I have a family, so please stay with me. It's a risk she takes to drive her kids to school, medical appointments, to go to church and the grocery store, basically to get around. 
which is why advocates called the bill to allow people like Louisa to get driver's licenses, the Work and Family Mobility Act. State Senator Brendan Crichton is a North Shore Democrat who sponsored the measure. This is about road safety uh, just as much as it's about you know our moral obligation to treat everyone equally. Our roads are safer if everyone is operating under the same set of rules. The law was 20 years in the making. Opponents said it would benefit people who violate immigration laws. But a majority of Massachusetts voters supported it last November. And now the new licenses are about to roll out. Here's Colleen Ogilvie from the Registry of Motor Vehicles. The licenses are going to look like any other standard driver's license that we issue today. There'll be nothing on it that differentiates it from any other license. Ogilvy says the licenses won't state a person's immigration status. Applicants will have to submit paperwork to verify their identity and that they live in Massachusetts. Immigration attorney Ivan Espinosa Madrigal with Lawyers for Civil Rights says one challenge is convincing people that applying for a license won't jeopardize their ability to stay in the country. They're not going to be singled out by the state or by law enforcement and that they will be treated just like any other driver. Being treated like any other driver is what Brazilian immigrant Luisa longs for. She's preparing for the learner's permit test at an English-as-a-second-language program in Framingham. The instructor, Noah Sullivan, asks what to do if your turn signal or brake lights stop Stop working. working. We studied this today. What do we use? Signals. That's right. Hand signals. Luisa says she's learned a lot more than hand signals from this class. In Brazil, for example, you can't turn right on the red. Here, you can. When I saw this, I said, oh my God, it's so different. And Luisa's getting her paperwork ready. The Registry of Motor Vehicles is preparing too. It's translating materials into 15 languages, extending hours, and adding staff to help more people get appointments. Once she gets her license, Luisa says she hopes to fulfill her dream of taking her family on a road trip. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have a report from eastern Ukraine on the latest Russian airstrike there and how the UK is trying to play catch up on its efforts to fight climate change. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community, honoring artists who banded together more than 40 years ago to buy an old warehouse and form the first artist co-op building in Massachusetts. See art commemorating the co-op at 249A Street on view now at Atlantic Wharf Gallery, fortpointarts.org. Tipping has become a major source of drama these days. We're paying tips at fast food restaurants, laundromats, and even grocery stores. And the emotional pressure consumers feel can be intense. Feels like a choice, but it isn't. In my own opinion, I think it's getting a little out of hand. I'm Ari Shapiro, tipping fatigue on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Much of the southern U.S. is facing extreme heat, with Texas breaking record high temperatures. 
For the first time in two decades, malaria has been transmitted in the U.S., with cases being found in Florida and Texas. Protests are erupting in France after police there shot and killed a 17-year-old delivery driver. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. There's a chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day today. Otherwise, it'll be overcast and in the low 80s. Tonight, it drops to the mid-60s. Then tomorrow, a little cooler with a high near 80 and more showers are possible. It's 71 degrees in Boston. The connection between online shopping and brick-and-mortar stealing. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio. Online shopping sites have a new duty this week to accurately identify high-volume third-party sellers. This is an effort to thwart organized criminals who steal merchant brick-and-mortar stores with their loot showing up at discounted prices online. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. You know, David, major retailers have been waiting for this for a couple of years. Big names from Target, Walgreens, CVS, Best Buy, and Neiman Marcus have all been calling for better identification of high-volume sellers online. And the retailers say a lot of the smash-and-grab robberies that made headlines during the pandemic are actually done by organized crime rings, and the merchandise ends up for sale online. And because sellers can hide behind fake names and addresses, it's been difficult to hold them accountable. So Congress did pass a law last December, the Inform Act, It was actually folded into the nearly $2 trillion omnibus spending bill. Remember that? So the law, which also is targeted at uh, counterfeits, requires online marketplaces such as Amazon and eBay to verify the identities of high-volume sellers. So they have to collect things like names and tax ID information. Also, the law requires online retailers to provide consumers with a mechanism for reporting suspicious listings. All right. Amazon and eBay. So how does the law define high-volume sellers? Well, that's defined a couple of ways, uh, but the law kicks in at at least 200 sales in a 12-month period or at least $5,000 in revenues. And it's important to know that this doesn't apply to people selling used stuff, just stuff marketed as new. All right, Nova, thank you very much. Let's get more context today on why home prices are moving higher again, despite the Federal Reserve's campaign to use interest rates to quiet down that market in there overall campaign against inflation. The Case-Shiller National Home Price Index went up in April by half a percent, the third straight month in which buying a place to live got more expensive. Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman has that. Home prices soared through the pandemic as people found they could work from home and home could be in a cheaper or better place to live, says Chris Mayer at Columbia Business School. The overall impact was basically an increase in demand for housing that has not abated. Last year, as mortgage rates rose, some buyers got priced out, and some sellers cut their asking prices to offset buyers' higher monthly mortgage payments. 
But the spike in mortgage rates has also convinced a lot of current homeowners to stay put and not sell because if they move, their new mortgage is likely to be more expensive. Zillow economist Nicole Bichot says as a result, We have a lot of people looking to buy. What we don't have is a lot of people who are trying to sell. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing prices starting to increase again. Meanwhile, she says many would-be buyers are afraid of missing out. We're seeing a lot of buyers in the market right now, even though it's so unaffordable because prices starting to rise again and it's not looking like it's going to get a whole lot better. With mortgage rates likely to stay elevated for a while. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. Markets S&P futures are down two-tenths of a percent. Dow futures are essentially flat. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. New data this week show that the outlook of consumers has brightened substantially. This is from the industry group, the Conference Board, and drawn from a June survey. Same time, many think we'll still see a recession within a year. And as Ali Budner reports, when it comes to our spending habits, the upbeat current outlook beats the vaguer concern about possible recession. Consumer spending makes up a whopping 70% of the U.S. GDP. So tracking how shoppers feel is important. How people feel about the economy affects their behavior, and their behavior then affects the economy once again. Joanne Shu heads up a consumer sentiment survey at the University of Michigan. She says inflation and high interest rates are dimming many people's outlook. And yet, there's something puzzling going on. Shu says American consumers have maintained robust spending in the face of a lot of hardship and high inflation. Shu says in the past, high inflation has led to poor consumer confidence, like we've seen over the last few months, and that has led to reduced spending. These indexes have even been used to predict recessions in the past. We've had lots of analysts and experts and consumers alike all bracing themselves for a recession that hasn't quite come yet. So the old calculations might not work in today's strange economy. Claudia Sam agrees. She's a consultant and former Federal Reserve economist who used to pay very close attention to data from consumer confidence reports. But she's giving it less weight now. Because it is just not lining up with our spending data. So what's going on? Well, Sam says people are looking around at all the economic panic, from the debt ceiling to inflation to high interest rates, and the landscape at large looks grim. But in their own personal financial lives, consumers are generally doing okay. They have jobs with decent wages. They maybe even have savings. It makes interpreting survey results a little squirrely. So, yeah, the consumer confidence figures, I think people look at those and try to find the story to fit into it. Sucharita Kodali is a retail analyst at Forrester. But much, much more crucial than how people feel is what they're actually doing with their money. And what consumers are doing, at least for now, is they're still spending. That's good for business, but not what the Federal Reserve needs to get a handle on inflation. I'm Ali Budner for Marketplace. 
And a trip to Costco may increasingly evoke a trip through airport security, although you can still keep your shoes on. The membership club is cracking down on the sharing of Costco cards. It better be you and you better have photo ID. In a statement, Costco wrote, We don't feel it's right that non-members receive the same benefits and pricing as our members. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. The Sumner Tunnel connecting East Boston to downtown will shut down a week from today and stay closed for two months. Right now at WBUR.org, everything you need to know about how to get around it. Low 80s today under cloudy skies. There's a chance of rain and thunderstorms throughout the day. Mid-60s tonight, tomorrow upper 70s with more showers possible. It's 71 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.